You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Father, we've had lots of moments to, to reflect and to think deeply on you and on Jesus Christ, your son, who gave everything for us. And in these moments, we've been able to set our heart on you. I pray, God, as we sit under your word now, Lord, would this be another instance where a heart is set on you, set on bringing you honor and glory by the way we live our life. I pray our heart will be set on you by the way we see how you look after us, how you care for us as a good father, and even your commitment, Lord, to your holiness and care for your flock. Would you help me, God, I pray, to preach your word with clarity and accuracy for the good of your people who you love so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel uh, at the end of a couple songs. Uh, Hamal said uh, we could go home. I'm glad you stayed. Um, You can turn to 1 Samuel if you don't have a Bible. Our ushers would love to give you one. Maybe you forgot yours at home. Just throw your hand up and they'll get it to you. This is week two of our series called Searching for a King. And Pastor Ted said last week, we know who the king is. It's Jesus. And uh, amen. And we're going to see that uh, over and over in this, uh, in this text. Um, so it's close to almost 20 years now. Uh, I was on a snowmobile with my wife, Kim. We were teenagers. And... She's driving the snowmobile, and I'm on the back, and I'm feeling pretty lame, just kind of sitting on the back, you know, going along with her. And so I'm like, Kimmy, you got to let me drive this thing. Give me a chance. To, I, I want to I wanna drive it. I can handle it. And she's kind of like, no, nah, you've never been on a snowmobile. This is like your first real time, even around snow. So just like, just, just let me handle this thing. I'm no, 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 give, give, me a, give me a chance. And so she gets off, and so we switch on, and we switch spots, and then I, I get on, and I, just, I start hammering this thing. I mean, I've got it full to the end, like right, let's just blowing through gas. I don't even know if snowmobile works off gas, but whatever. We're just kind of going fast. And as we are going, I, I notice we are going towards a bushy area, and it looks like all that's in this area is rocks. So I'm thinking, well, I could probably stop the snowmobile before we get into this thing that's probably going to bring lots of harm. But as we are, as it's kind of flying down and she's talking a little bit, and I'm thinking, actually, I don't think I can stop the snowmobile. I I think we're going to crash. So do you know what I do? I jumped off the snowmobile. (laughs) Yeah. And I didn't tell Kim. Yeah, I know. I'm a better husband now. (laughs) So much disappointment. Now, somebody asked me last night, what happened to Kim? I honestly don't remember. But she is okay now. Now the way, <laughs> the, <laughs> oh man, the way, the way I abandoned her in that moment, I, I share that with you so you know that God never does that to us. God never abandons his children. He is a good father who sticks with us. And we are going to see that in the way he confronts our sin, in the way he speaks his 
word and the way he fulfills his promise. We're going to see his commitment to us. And I want to say to you, we have lots to cover. We're going to go from chapter 2 all the way to the end of chapter 4. Um, so we're going to jump right in and ask that you would just stick with me because if we don't get through it all, we're not going to fully understand what God is doing here. And so here's our first point. God will confront our sin. Point one is God will confront our sin. Verse 12 says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pot, the pan, sorry, or kettle, or cauldron, or pot. All the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give me meat for the priest to roast, for he will not except boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then ask, then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. If not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men were very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel, verse 18, was ministering before the Lord. A boy clothed in a linen ephod and his mother used to make him a, a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord." The Holy Spirit who inspires the word of God doesn't leave us uh, wondering of what Eli's sons were like, Hophni and Phinehas. It says they were worthless men, that they did not know the Lord. They're around the tabernacle and the temple. They're around the things of God, but their heart is not changed in any way. And this comes out in their actions. Leviticus 7 says that there's a very specific portion of the animal sacrifices that the, the, the priests were allowed to have. But Hophni and Phinehas are taking whatever they want. They're just sticking the fork in and taking whatever comes out. See, what they're doing here is they're exploiting the people that they're called to serve. And they're also robbing God. The fat offering of the of the, the sacrifice belong to God. But they're saying, no, we want the meat with the fat on it. Verse 16 explains that these guys are bullies. It says, and if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, then, they, then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. If not, I will take it by Force. They're threatening the people with violence. The servants of the priests are saying, if you don't give it to me, it's going to get physical around here. Verse 17 summarizes, says, the sins of the young men were very great. Very great. Don't miss here either the, the contrast. The contrast between the faithful lay people and the wicked priests. The faithful people. I, I pray that we would be a church that 
is, wants to honor God in everything. I'm asking you to pray for our church that way. Pray for our pastors, our leaders, our members, that in everything we would always want to sh show honor to God in everything that we do. Eli's son stole from the people. They stole from God, but things got worse. Verse 22, now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. They're committing sexual sin at the temple. A place where sin is supposed to be confessed is now a place where sin is being committed. And none of this is in secret. It says Eli heard, kept hearing all his sons were doing. And he does very little to stop it. Verse 23 and he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear the evil dealings from these people. No, my son, it's not a good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their fathers, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel kept, continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. They refuse to listen to their father. Eli's a failure when it comes to governing his children. It says they refuse to listen, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now all that is being said there is that they wanted their sin so bad. They were so committed to living this sinful life that God simply gave them over to that sin. Dale Davis says, someone can remain so firm in his rebellion that God will confirm him in it. So much so that he will remain utterly deaf. These are utterly deaf boys. To and unmoved by any warnings of judgment or pleas for repentance. This is the danger of sin. Sin promises so much, but all it delivers to us is a hard heart if we let it fester in our lives. That's why we fight sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Eli warns his sons, but his rebuke leads to no immediate punishment. He can't change their hearts, but he can change their employment. He's the high priest. He could remove them from their role, but he does, he does none of that. He takes no action. His failure to discipline his children will cause him grief later. This reminds all parents of the importance of disciplining children. Now I'm not talking about harsh, intimidating discipline. I'm talking about loving, firm, God-honoring correction for the good of the child. Proverbs 29 says, discipline your son or daughter and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Failure to discipline children put them in danger and opens parents up to grief, the possibility of grief later. Faithful discipline of children is a way that we honor the Lord. Eli honored his sons instead of God, and it comes out when his sin is confronted. Verse 27, there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your fathers when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I 
Did I choose him out of the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your fathers all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offering that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons? There it is, above me, fattening yourselves on the choicest part of, ev of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. The man of God comes and he gives a little history lesson. He describes all that God has done for Eli and his house. He says, God says, I revealed myself to you. He says, I chose you to have the benefits, the privilege of being a priest. He says, I gave you enough to eat. Verse 29 even reveals to us that Eli knowingly benefited from the sins of his son. He fattened himself. He grew heavy, we're going to see, from their sinful and wicked deeds. Essentially, God says, I did all this for you, and you spat in my face. That's what he says to him. God confronts Eli on his sin, and God will lovingly confront us on our sin. When we open the Bible, God uses his word to show us where we are out of step. He uses the Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit will speak and reveal to us places where we're out of step. He uses his people. We're called to speak the truth in love to one another. That means we always have to be in a spot where we're prepared to hear from one another. I've always got to be ready that another brother or sister in Christ will speak and call me on my sin. And God will also use suffering at times to show us where we are in sin. But I want to speak to the one about the people for a moment. Because there's a temptation, there's a danger in that one. Because sometimes when somebody speaks the truth in love to us, they don't do it in the best ways. Sometimes the tone is off, the timing is off, and it's messy. And the temptation in that moment is to make it about how they said it rather than what they said. And when we make it about how they said it, Rather than what they said, we often dismiss what they said. And that's the danger. Because in our throwing the baby out with the bathwater, we miss somewhere in there where God is speaking through that person. In all that messiness, God is saying something to us. And we miss the opportunity if we just dismiss what they've said to grow in Christ and not persist in sin. So let's not do that. God confronts our sin because he loves us. See, Eli refused to discipline his children, but God is not like that. God will discipline us because he loves us. It says he confronts our sin. He disciplines us, Hebrew says, so that we would share in his holiness. God wants us to grow, to become more Holy. That's why he comes at us, lovingly disciplining us. Confronting our sin is a sign of God's grace. It's a sign that God has not abandoned us. 
He loves us too much to leave us in our sin because unchecked sin has devastating consequences. Look at verse 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off from your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. And then in, then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall go, do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in, uh, in your house shall come and implore him for a piece of silver, a loaf of bread, and shall say, please, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. God had promised that they were going to be priests forever, but that was a conditional promise. It was conditional on them showing honor to God, Eli and his house. They did not do that. And God says they're going to be cut off. Hophni and Phinehas are going to die on the same day. And by the time you read to the end of 1 Kings, all of Eli's descendants are removed from the priesthood completely. Eli refused to honor God and now his house is being despised, it says, and lightly esteemed. Eli... And his sons paint a discouraging picture. But in the middle of all of this ugliness, there is a little bit of hope. It says, Eli, sorry, Samuel, verse 18, was ministering before the Lord. Verse 26 says, Samuel was growing in stature and favor with God and man. These hints are meant to do two things. The first thing they're meant to do is to encourage us. It's to encourage us. Samuel's faithful example shows that we can live God-honoring lives no matter the environment. He's coming up in a dark time. The times we're living in feel like a dark time. People are doing only what is right in their own eyes. They're doing that in sexuality. They're doing that in speech, in government, in churches, in fashion. In music, in media, in relationships, in families, in marriages, in the way races treat one another. But we can live differently. We have a king. His name is Jesus. And this king has told us how to live our life. Amen. And not only has Jesus told us how to live our life, he sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of us who gives us the power to do what he has said. So that we can be a light in a dark time. And so we can be encouraged. We can live differently. The second thing it hints at and the second thing it's telling us is that God is already working on his replacement. He's already working on his replacement for Eli and his sons. See, God doesn't abandon his people. And he's going to make sure that he has faithful leadership over his people. God cares about who is shepherding his flock. And so he will judge Eli's family and put Samuel in their place. And in chapter 3, we see Samuel taking steps into that role. It says, chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. 
and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow, had begun, begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. God confronts our sin, but God also speaks his word to us. In these first three verses, we're told three things. It says the word of God was rare in those days. It says Eli's eyes begun to grow dim. He was blind physically and he was also blind spiritually. It says the lamp of God had not yet gone out. On one level, this is a reference to the time of day. The lamp of God would burn all night. But all of this is also meant to be symbolic. Eli's eyes are dim. The light of the lamp is dim, but it's not yet gone out. What the writer is saying is that there's still hope. There's still hope. God will not leave himself silent. All of that is about to change. He's going to regularly speaking his word through Samuel. Look at verse 5. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls, you shall, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. The word called is used 11 times in that section. One of the ways, if you want to know sometimes what is going on in the passage, just look. What are repeated words? What are being said? That will often give you an idea of the dominant theme, the dominant thing that is happening there. And what's happening is God is calling Samuel to lead. But he's slow in grasping it. And verse 7 explains, it says, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word had not been revealed to him. He's slow in grasping what is going on because he's never received the word from God before. This is untraveled ground. Now, we've all had moments like this where we're slow in grasping something. You know, you're reading a novel or you're watching a movie and the plot is complex and it's moving fast and you can't figure out, like, what this character is doing and why that is happening. And then somebody comes and they're like, this is what's going on. And you're like, oh, I, I understand. I'm not so annoyed anymore with that movie. Well, Eli is about to do that for Samuel. It says he perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. And Eli instructs him to go lay down and wait for another call. And like a persistent telemarketer, another call comes. And the fourth time, it comes, God says, Samuel, Samuel. That should remind us of when God called Moses in Exodus 3. He said, Moses, Moses. Both men responded the same way. He said, here I am. This is God's call to Samuel to be his prophet. And Samuel says, speak for your servant hears. God does just 
that. Verse 11. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears will tingle. God says, I'm going to do something and it's going to make people tremble. And on that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his, his house from the beginning to end. And I, de- I declare to him that I am about to punish about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God. All the time the Bible tells us, Eli knew what was going on. And he did not restrain them. He knew and he did nothing. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the door of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? You ever have somebody ask you a question and you're like, you really want the answer to that? This is kind of one of those moments. He says, do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me. All that he told you. Eli's house is going to be judged. It says they're going to be judged because they blasphemed. They blasphemed the sacrifices that God had ordained for the cleansing of sins. His sons did that. And Eli's caught up in it because he knowingly benefited from their evil. The first message that Samuel gets is for Eli. And in chapter, uh, verse 16, he says, he calls Samuel his son. And that's because Samuel had actually been entrusted to him. They, his parents left him there. So Eli becomes this adopted father to Samuel. And so Samuel has to rebuke his father. It says he lay all night. So Samuel was afraid to tell the vision. See, he's compassionate. He's afraid because he, he doesn't, he's not excited to speak judgment over his adopted father. He's not eager to do that. He has a tender heart. He has compassion. See, you and I will be called to speak hard things to people, but we are not to delight in doing that. We can have a heart of compassion for the person we are going to speak to. And that comes when my heart for the person is redemptive. That means I'm speaking to them because I want to see them in a good place with Jesus. Maybe they're out of step and I want to see them walking in the right ways, in God-honoring ways. And that's why I speak. And so Samuel's afraid, but Eli says, tell me. Verse 18 He does that. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Now in all of that, the thing that surprises me most is Eli's response. He is not an outright rebellion, but there's no action. All, often when, you, when you're reading, it's just always telling you that Eli's laying down. 
I think that's, he's a man of inaction. His sin is called out, it's spoken to him, and he does nothing. There's no repentance, there's no, thank you for telling me that, I need to pray and ask God to forgive me. There's no admitting of anything, he just says, it's the Lord. That's exactly how to not respond when God speaks his word. Here's how we are to respond. Isaiah 66. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. James 1.22 says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. When God speaks his word, we are to believe and then act. That is true listening, doing what God says by the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything else is just hearing. We are to believe and then act. That is a way that we honor God with our life. This chapter ends with some clear statements about Samuel. It says, God let none of his words fall to the ground. That means everything he said proved true. It says the Lord revealed himself to Samuel. Samuel, it says, was established as a prophet of the Lord. And this was promised in Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18 says, I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. So the chapter starts with, there wasn't a word often from the Lord. And the chapter actually ends in 4 verse 1. And it says, and the word of Samuel came to Israel. Samuel had a regular word for the people of God because God continued to give him a word for them. And so in many ways, Samuel fulfills this role as a prophet. But Samuel is pointing forward to Jesus. Hebrews 1 says that many times and in many ways, God has spoken to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Just like the people of Israel had a regular word from Samuel, we have the word from God. God has spoken finally and definitively to us through his son. In Luke 9, 35, God says, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. I've spoken to you through him. Here's what it says. Listen to him. Listen to him. Do what he says by the power of the Spirit. If you listen to what Jesus says, nothing but good is going to come to your life. That doesn't mean it's always going to be easy, but good things are going to come to you if you listen to what he says by the power of the Spirit and live by it. All of this reminds us of the reality that God does what he says. If he says he's going to do something, he will do it. And this brings us to our final point. God will fulfill his promise. God will fulfill his promise. It says, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in the line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? So 
the chapter now, the story moves away from Samuel, and now we see the people of Israel going to battle against the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were descendants from the people of Egypt, and they're the main threat. They're the main threat at this point to Israel. And so they go to battle, and they lose the battle. But notice that they are aware of why they lost. They don't say the Philistines beat them. They say, God defeated us. They say, why? They ask the question, why has the Lord defeated us today? See, they understand the sovereignty of God over everything. Now, the sad part of this is that they don't ponder the question very long. They don't stop long to think about it. And notice that they don't go to the prophet on hand. They don't go to Samuel and say, do you know why we lost this battle? They, they don't do any of that. If they did that, they probably would have heard that God is not pleased with Hophni and Phinehas. And he's not pleased with the community. All they do is they brainstorm. They brainstorm and then they take things into their own hands. Chapter, uh, verse 3 says, they say, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout. They see the ark and they're like, ah! It's a war cry. They scream. They go crazy. They're like, what are you going to do now, Philistines? We've got our thing. They scream. And when the Philistines, I did that to wake you up. And when the Philistines <laughs> heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. And said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage. There it is. <laughs> and be man, O Philip. I love it. Lest you become slaves to the Hebrews so that you have been, that, that, as they have been to you, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. They died. The, they send for the ark. They send for the ark. Now, the ark was a, a box, and inside the box had a bit of, uh, had some manna, and then had the two tablets of stone that Moses brought down from Sinai. It was also a symbol of God's presence with his people. They bring it to the battlefield. They assume if we, if we bring the ark, if we bring it there, then God will be forced. He'll be forced to, de to uh, deliver us and protect his honor. What you have here is not faith. What you have here is manipulation. They're trying to manipulate God into helping them, but we have to know God will not be manipulated by his people. We can't use God in any way. See, God will protect his honor, 
but he's going to do it in a way that they don't expect. He will protect his honor and fulfill his promise by removing false, evil leadership from over his people. The ark scares the Philistines, but it doesn't scare them in making them run away. It scares them into fighting even harder. They thought they were guaranteed victory. But don't miss who brought the ark. Verse 4 says, The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were with the ark. The two most offensive people to God are the ones who come and bring the ark. See, what you have here is that the people of Israel are being impulsive. They impulsively go into battle, and God uses their impulsiveness to fulfill his promise. Their impulsiveness caused lots of people, cost lots of people their lives. It says the slaughter was very great. See, we don't want to be people who are impulsive. We want to be people who take our time in doing things. We want to pray. We want to ask God for wisdom, for help. We want to invite counsel into our lives. We don't want to just rush into things. We take our time in doing things, asking for God's help. So often when we're impulsive, nothing good comes from that type of action. So the ark was captured. 30,000 people died, but including the two sons. Eli also dies. Look at verse 12. It says, a man of Benjamin from the ba- ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day. And his clothes was torn with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. This marks the end of the rule of Eli and his sons. His gluttony had caught up to him. He's so big. His weight... His gluttony from eating the fat portions crushes him, breaks his neck. Now it's easy to get caught up in the bloodiness of this battle and the sad way all of this is coming to an end. But you got to know, we got to know, this judgment from God was an act of grace. It was an act of grace from God towards his people. Because God in this judgment was removing false shepherds from over his people. See, I I said in the beginning, God cares deeply about who leads his people. As I've been working on this message this week, I've I've just been asking myself, God, I'm, 
I'm a pastor in our church. Show me where I'm not being faithful. Because we've got to know God is not afraid to make a mess to remove that false shepherd. Because he cares about who is leading his people. He's going to have a faithful shepherd over his flock. And so this is a grace. So yes, the ark is captured. But the ark comes back. Chapter 6 and 7, we'll see that in a couple weeks, that the ark comes back. But more importantly, these false priests are gone. They're gone from their leadership role. God was protecting his honor, and God was protecting his people. This was a grace. So God fulfilled his promise by removing them. It also made it possible for God to fulfill another promise that he had made. In chapter 2, verse 35, it says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall be, and he shall be, he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Just like Samuel fulfilled the role of a prophet, and that was ultimately pointing to Jesus. Samuel also fulfills this role as a priest, but he was also pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Earlier, Eli asked his sons, he said, if a man sins against God, who can intercede for him? Who can do that? The answer to that question is Jesus Christ. He is the one who can do that. Jesus is our faithful high priest. Hebrews says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus is our high priest who sacrifices himself for us. We have sinned against God. And Jesus comes and pays for that sin. Hebrews 7 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Maybe you've come into the room today and you're not a believer and you're lost in all of your sin. And you're like, who can save me? The Bible says Jesus can save you. That Jesus can draw you near to God. All you've got to do is place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. To believe the gospel that we sinned against God. But that God loved us enough to send his son to live for us and die for us on the cross. Like he committed all the sins we committed. And then rose from the grave and is ruling and reigning. And one day will return for us. You put your faith in that. You will be drawn near to God. Can we get Hebrews back up again? Hebrews 7 says, since he always, here it is, lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is our priest who sacrifices himself for us, but he's also our high priest who intercedes for us. He goes to God on our behalf. We sinned against God, but God didn't abandon us. God came towards us. He sent his son, his son who came as a prophet, who speaks his word to us. His son who came as a priest, who gave himself for 
us, his son who we're going to see who came. In later messages, we'll see this, who came as our king, who is ruling and reigning and is leading us home. Jesus does all of this for us. All of this shows that God is a good father who does not abandon his children. He comes towards us. He confronts our sin. He speaks his word to us, and he fulfills his promises to us. And so we got to keep all of that in mind and ask God for his strength to live for him by the power of the Spirit, to live God-honoring lives. He's a good father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. God, for your grace. We experience so much of your grace, even right now, with this opportunity to sit under your word. Thank you for your love, your commitment to your character, and your commitment, Lord, to us as your people. That you care about who is shepherding your flock. That you care deeply, God, for us. That you speak to us. That you gave your son for our sins. Thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to give it all for us. Thank you, God, for your goodness in not abandoning us. You're a good father, and we love you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.